Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Look at Acts chapter 9, moving on. Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at the conversion of Saul this morning. Saul had an amazing experience. An amazing experience. He's got one of those testimonies that probably if that were something that would happen in today's day and age, he'd be immediately on all the Christian networks. He'd be writing books and all kinds of stuff, or at least he'd be offered the opportunity to do it, right? Because we love the miraculous, (laughs) don't we? I think when you look at Galatians and he says, who has bewitched you? It's an amazing thing because the truth of the matter is that idea of being bewitched has the idea of being mesmerized. Who's caught your eye? Who has somehow done some kind of a dance in front of you to get your eyes off of Christ and onto something that looks religious but really isn't? Can anybody here that knows the Lord say, That we know the Lord because of anything that we've done. We know the Lord because of anything that we could take claim to or that we were deserving in some way. No. Clearly not. Saul's the same way. Paul's the same way. How is it that we're saved? How is it that all of us have a testimony? It's because of God's grace. Period. Some people have testimonies where they grew up in a Christian home and they don't have this big flamboyant moment, right? They, they, they can't necessarily uh, say, well, this is what I used to be and I was this terrible, horrible, horrific, awful, <laughs> in the pit kind of guy, kind of lady. And do we devalue their testimony in that? I think not. Because all of it's by God's grace. I I tend to have a testimony that was like that. Grew up in a Christian home. (laughs) We could go through the whole thing. Religious. Religious. All by God's grace. All by God's grace. We're here because of God's grace. We breathe because of God's grace. We grow because of God's grace grace. He doesn't have to involve himself in our lives. He chooses to. He's kind. He's useful. He makes himself available to us. And it's not because of our efforts. It's not because of anything that we could ever do or then we were expected to do that we come to know Christ. It's through God's grace. Paul is no different. And I would suggest to you that God's grace in this story is sufficient. If you get one thing out of this story, God's grace is sufficient to save the most hardened of hearts, transforming us into his image. His grace is sufficient. Paul is one of the most religious individuals you could have ever met. And yet the Lord lovingly confronted him with truth. And I love Paul's response. Lord, who are you, Lord? (laughs) It's amazing. God's grace. Let me give you a little background on this as we look at it. Uh, First of all, Paul, if you remember in chapter 8, verse 1, was agreeing with the stoning of Stephen. Talk about a hardened heart. Here's a guy being murdered. 
falsely accused, drugged before the Sanhedrin, didn't have a shred of evidence against him. And he so angered these religious leaders, the people that are supposed to know God, that they took him out and stoned him. Why? Because he preached Christ, because he preached grace, because he preached the fact that it's all about what God has done for us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb. And he gave him a historical perspective of it. Saul was standing there agreeing heartily with what they were doing. He began to persecute believers in chapter 8, verse 3. He was jailing both men and women, dragging them out of their homes. He would go pursue them. How can we stomp this out? Because he was so passionate and zealous for God. Amazing, isn't it? The church is dispersed. We learn that in verse 4 of chapter 8. And they continue to preach the gospel. We see Philip in Samaria and many people coming to know Christ. All kinds of miracles taking place. God establishing the gospel, establishing the authority of the local church in Jerusalem, the apostles, as well as other servants. Many are believing. And then we see the foreshadowing of the gospel spreading into the uttermost as Philip is sent on a road to nowhere (laughs) to meet the Ethiopian eunuch. Isn't that awesome? From all this activity, he's sent to somewhere where he doesn't know what's going on and there's no tangible evidence of anything happening. Yet he's obedient to it and the Lord does a tremendous work and we see the foreshadowing of not only Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, but also now into the uttermost. And so now we hit a section within Acts where all of a sudden we go from Saul uh, to Peter, Saul to Peter, Paul to Peter, Paul to Peter, Peter to Paul to Paul to Paul to Paul to Paul. (laughs) It becomes a lot about Paul because it becomes a lot about the taking of the gospel into the world and to the Gentiles. And the first salvo in this particular story is clearly Saul's conversion, his salvation. There's four things I want to look at this morning. Yes, I said four. Y'all are used to me saying three. I got to change it up every once in a while in order to make sure you're awake. First of all, the first two verses, the vicious pursuit of believers. Secondly, the manifested presence of Jesus Christ in verses three through nine. Then there's the call to proclaim the gospel. What was Saul's calling? Fascinating. Pharisee of Pharisees. And he's called to the Gentiles. Us. Verses 10 through 16. And lastly, the gracious provision of the Holy Spirit. We have the story of Ananias in the midst of this. <laughs> I love Ananias. I so relate with Ananias, and I can guarantee you by the end of this one, you will too. Because the truth of the matter is, is we are so good at telling the Lord what he already knows in order to come with, up with excuses not to do what he's telling us to do. Because all we can ever do is evaluate things based on the past and the present. We don't trust the Lord with the future. Ikes, right? The gracious provision of the Holy Spirit. First two verses are a continuation. We kind of had this parenthetical moment where we see God doing a work in Samaria. Why was the Lord sending Philip there? Well, we know that the believers from Jerusalem were being spread into Judea as well as into Samaria. Because of the persecution taking place through Saul. 
In verses 1 and 2, we find this out. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Breathing threats is a term meaning to be threatening, menacing, to be coming after somebody verbally. I'm going to get you. You say you believe in this Jesus, this Nazarene. You're a part of the way. I'm coming after you. And it was a serious threat because the next word is the word murder. And it's a very specific word. It literally has the idea of death by the sword. Death by the sword. We're seeing that in our day. We're seeing that in our day, folks. I'm going to come after you. You believe in this Jesus. I'm doing it in the name of God. And I'm going to make sure that if you say that you believe in Jesus, you are going to die by the sword. Wow. Interesting, isn't it? Well, he was on his way to Damascus in Syria. Syria has been in the news quite a bit lately. These were synagogues where the high priests, or the high priest would have had authority. Saul went to the high priest. He wanted a signature. He wanted a document that he could go and take to the rabbis of the the leaders of the synagogues and to basically say to them, you help us get these people that are of the way and we're going to bind them. We're going to put them in prison. We're going to take them back to Jerusalem so that they can stand trial for this false religion and that they can be put to death. It's interesting, isn't it? (laughs) Folks, we need to be in prayer, don't we? Don't you feel heavy in your heart? I do. I just feel heavy in my heart. We prayed for Pastor Saeed on Friday night. I want to tell you something. I don't know what God's doing in this world. I thank God he's sovereign over it. I don't know what's going on over in Iraq. And by the way, we're about to get ready to send. There's a church in Baghdad that we're going to, Lord willing, send the the money to in order for them to be able to disperse it, help disperse it throughout the refugee camps. I, I, I look at all the things going on. I look at the moral depravity. I look at the breakdown of the family. I look at the problems everywhere. And I'm not just talking about out there. And there are times where I don't know as a pastor what to do other than to run to the Lord and say, Lord, you're the shepherd, you're sovereign. I don't know where else to go. Because it doesn't matter what kind of program I could come up with. It doesn't matter what kind of thinking. It doesn't even, sometimes it seems, doesn't even matter biblically what I could say as a mandate from the Lord for us to be surrendered to him in. It, it just seems like the apathy and the coldness and all the stuff that's going on in our world and in our culture and even in our churches, unfortunately. And I have to run to the Lord and say, Lord, be thou my vision. Be thou my vision. Because that's what this is all about. We're in an amazing time. We're in an amazing journey. And all of us are a part of it. And we all need to come before the Lord because there's nobody here that can figure this out. 
Only the Lord can do this. Only the Lord can lead us. Only the Lord is sufficient and adequate for the task. I have a feeling that in many ways the early church was feeling that. They were under persecution. They were under threat. They were being dispersed. It looked like things were being destroyed. And yet on the other side, they saw some amazing things that God was doing. They saw things that the Lord was accomplishing in and through them that they praised God for. And the reaction and response to these difficulties was one of joy and praise. But I have no doubt that there were times like with Ananias even, that they started to walk through the difficulties and they went, oh Lord, don't you know about this? Don't, don't you understand what's going on here? And they had to be encouraged. All of us need to be encouraged. God is faithful. We sang it. God is good. We know it because the word of God says it. The Lord is able to accomplish great and mighty things. The question is, do we trust him to do it? I think it's interesting that Paul and Galatians had such insight into the Christian life. Galatians 4.29, he says, As at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. Now, the, the context of there, I don't have time to go through the whole, whole letter of Galatians. Some of you just took a deep sigh of relief. The point of the matter is what Paul's trying to get across is the bondwoman versus the free woman. The law versus grace. And what he's saying here in this particular passage in Galatians is that the ones who are religious, the ones who are bound by the law, persecute those who are born according to the Spirit. How do you think Paul knew that? How do you think he had such insight into that? Because he was breathing threats and murder against the believers. What was he? He was one who was bound by the law. He didn't understand the grace of God. He certainly didn't understand Stephen's story, his sermon, although I think that God used it in his life in a powerful way. Galatians 3.24, Paul, in, in his insight to the law, through the Spirit of God, the revelation of the Lord, says this, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. How do you think he knew that? I think he understood that very well because he understood that the law is empty and that the law could not breed life. And he was frustrated deeply with this religious emptiness. And he was chasing after believers, trying to stomp out grace, trying to stomp out faith, ultimately persecuting Christ himself. Amazing. In verse 3, the Lord makes his presence known. (laughs) Isn't this neat? I I don't know who these guys are that are with them. They must have been compadres, I mean, whatever you want to call them. They're, They're obviously religious leaders of some sort. Maybe they were guards. Maybe they were soldiers. But it would have been interesting to watch their reaction, wouldn't it? As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. By the way, that word I am there is a very specific phrase. Ego a me. It means I am the self-existent eternal Jesus. I am the logos. I am the word. I am the eternal one. You're persecuting me. I am God. You're persecuting me. I think it's interesting when you look at this that the Lord knew Saul by name. Isn't that awesome? The Lord appears to Saul. Saul has been an arch enemy, if you want to think of it that way. And yet the Lord comes to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I think it's amazing to know that the Lord knows every one of us. The Lord knows every individual on the face of this earth by name. He knows everybody. He knows every heart. He knows every motive. He knows everyone. Secondly, the Lord clearly knew what Saul was doing. And he knew what it would take to confront him with the truth himself. That's fascinating, isn't it? No person could ever take credit for leading Saul to the Lord. The Lord did it himself. The Lord is the one that came to him and confronted him. The Lord is the one that immediately confronts Saul with the shallowness, the emptiness of his religion, with the evil of his actions. The Lord does. In Acts chapter 26, fascinating passage, Paul's recounting this story himself. And in verses 12 through 15, Acts 26, 12 and following, he says, While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he adds this part to it. We don't have it recorded in Acts 9, but here it's recorded from Saul's own account. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Again, the I am statement is used. I am the self-exist. I am the eternal God. I am the logos. Kicking against the goads. Well, what are you you talking about? I've referred to this a few weeks ago as the idea of an ox goad, right? A really long stick with a sharp end because if that ox turns on you, you want something to make sure that it goes where it's supposed to go. At least I would. I don't want to do this with my hand. I think the running of the bulls is flat out dumb. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) They, they would take the goad and they would make sure, and they would poke it in the behind, right? They would, kick, they would make sure that it would get at the, at the legs so that that big beast would start to go where it's supposed to go. And the Lord's saying to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. The indication is that the Lord had been working in Saul's life all along. That this meeting on the road to Damascus is ultimately not the first time. It is very, very real. It is very, very tangible. It's an amazing moment in time where the Lord comes to him and confronts him. He manifests his presence to him. But all along, the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, has been working in Saul's life, goading him 
and Saul is kicking against those goads. He doesn't like it. But it's the echo of something that's there that he can't put his finger on, but he knows that it's real and he can't explain it. What are some of those goads? Well, I referred to it earlier. Saul was standing right there when Stephen is put to death, when he's murdered. Remember what Stephen said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Wow. Can you imagine that thought constantly running through Saul's mind? He watched this man die. This man had just given a testimony of the entire history, 30,000 foot view of Israel. And all about the grace of Christ, all about the faithfulness of God, all about not keeping the works, but rather believing in God. Faith. And he's put to death for it. And I believe one of the goads that the Lord used in Saul's life was that moment. Because I don't think Saul could get it out of his mind. We know that the word of God does not return void. And we know that Stephen preached the word of God in its totality, in its essence, with passion and truth and the ring of integrity in the midst of it. Had to be something that sliced right through this religious nonsense that Saul held so dearly to. Another goad would have, I believe, been the testimony of the other saints who were suffering at Paul's hands, at Saul's hands. How they responded. We know historically when they were fed the lions, they went singing. The Holy Spirit in them, empowering them, encouraging them, giving them the strength to submit to the Lord even in the midst of very difficult things and even to the point of giving their lives, continuing to rejoice and to love the ones that were doing this to them. Another goad may have been, and I believe there's sufficient reason to believe this, Romans chapter 3 is all about this in many ways. But the law and its inability to produce life, the inability of an individual to keep the law, the purpose of the law was literally to shut all men, not only the Jews but also the Gentiles, under sin so that there would be the recognition of the need of a Savior. And I can only imagine that as the Lord was working in Saul's life, trying to goad him, working in the midst of circumstances in order to bring Saul to himself, that Saul recognized there was something empty about this religion. He wasn't experiencing the peace of God. He wasn't experiencing the satisfaction of serving God by killing innocent people. And in the midst of that, the Lord in his graciousness, the Lord through his grace was coming alongside of Saul and ministering to him in spite of the fact that Saul was ultimately persecuting the Lord. He says in verse 6, get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. There's a parenthetical moment here. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. We know from the previous passage we just looked at in Acts 26, they fell to the ground. They heard the voice. They didn't see anybody. They didn't understand what was being said, but they knew something was happening. Great fear. The Lord tells Saul, get up, enter the city. 
and it will be told you what you must do. Immediately, who's in control? (laughs) But Saul thought he was in control, didn't he? I mean, he had letters from the high priest. Who's in control? The Lord's in control. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Saul, who was in charge of leading others where they did not want to go, was now helpless and had to be led. Saul, who had authority, now had none. Saul, who thought he was doing something great for God, catch that. He thought that he was doing this for God. (laughs) Was now dependent upon God and God's grace. Saul, who thought he knew and could see, now was blind and spiritually confused. Saul, who thought he was a law keeper, found out he was actually a lawbreaker and in desperate need of the grace of Christ, the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Have you been there? Have you been there? Have you been broken to the point where all the things that you thought were so true, all the things that you rested on, all the foundational things have been shattered and taken away and suddenly you get to the point where you realize that the only foundation you've really got, the only foundation we really have is Christ himself. Everything else doesn't really matter because (laughs) it won't stand, it won't last. He's the rock. He's our fortress. He is our salvation. He is our righteousness. He is our life. Have you been there? Have you been there? Verse 10, we find out about Saul's calling and a guy named Ananias. Ananias actually means Jehovah has dealt graciously. Isn't it cool that the Lord sent brother Ananias to brother Saul and his name means the Lord has dealt graciously. Catch that. Don't miss that. It's not by accident. Verse 10, there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul for he is praying. What a picture. Amen? Spiritual confusion, darkness, blinded, isn't eating anything. We find that out in verse uh, later on in, in the verses here where he, he doesn't eat anything or drink anything for three days. He's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Uh, It's really comical in a a way, isn't it? Um, Lord, what? Really? You want me to go where? Don't you know who this guy is? Don't you know that I'm in danger if I go to this guy? We know the story of 
Saul and what he's been doing. We know that he's been breathing threats. We even know that he has letters from the chief priests in order to put anybody who believes in you into prison. Lord, you want me to do what? Isn't that just like us? The Lord calls us to something we don't understand it, so we start telling uh, the Lord all the things that he already knows as reasons for why we shouldn't do what he's telling us to do. We do it all the time, don't we? Well, he goes on. (laughs) He says, the Lord says to him in verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. In other words, the whole world. The Gentiles, the kings, and the sons of Israel. Is there anybody left? Maybe the queens? The Gentiles, kings, and the sons of Israel. I mean, really, literally, he's a chosen instrument. He's a chosen vessel of mine through which I am going to pour my life into as well as through in order to proclaim the gospel, the good news, to bear my name before the whole world. Wow. That's something. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I love how Ananias, and we're being a little facetious here. I mean, he does listen to what the Lord tells him to do. And his first response is, here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. Is that our response? When the Lord calls us to something we don't fully understand, the Lord is gracious. He understands that sometimes we get confused about things. We don't really know for sure. Is that really what you want us to do? I mean, Ananias' heart in it was really precious, isn't it? Here I am, Lord. He listens. He's willing. He's honest with the Lord about his concerns regarding Saul. We can, we can make fun of it a little bit and have a little fun at our own expense. But the truth of the matter is, is that he was just being honest. And it's okay to be honest. There's times where we don't understand what the Lord wants us to do. There's times where we don't see the future and we're not sure exactly how it's going to work out. We don't know what the the results are going to be. We don't know the fruit that's going to be yielded through our submission to the Lord. In fact, it, it doesn't look like any of those things are going to take place. And it's okay to be honest. He was obedient regardless. Saul's calling is rather remarkable. He's a chosen instrument. He's a vessel, a vessel. Notice that the Lord already has a plan for Saul. Saul didn't come up with it. Saul didn't come up with it. Saul didn't go to the Lord and say, oh, I got a great idea. Lord, I think I know what you want me to do. No, no, (laughs) Saul had to die to self. Saul had to come before the Lord and recognize that it was all about the Lord. The Lord wasn't giving Saul all of these things uh, in, in just a full package and say, go do it, Saul. Now I've saved you, I lived in you, now you go do this. Saul was being told step by step what to do. Saul had to walk by faith even as we're required to. That's why Saul, who became Paul, can say, follow me as I follow the Lord. How did he follow the Lord? Dying to self. Dying to self. And saying, yes, Lord. So we have a great picture in our dear, beloved apostle, one of the founders of the church, who simply died to self and followed the Lord. And we're told, you do the same. You do the same. I like how Zane Hodges puts this. He says, Ananias knows only the past and the present. 
But God speaks of the future. Did Saul seem to be destructive and hostile to the Lord's name, you think? He would bear that name. Had he caused suffering to those who called upon it, he would discover how much he must suffer for it. If we refuse obedience or shrink from it, we do so on mere knowledge of past or present. Far better to lean on and obey him who knows the future. For the future belongs to the one who does the will of God. That's beautiful, isn't it? We get so scared. Come on, let's admit it. We're going to do what? That doesn't make sense. We can't figure that out. We can't measure that. We can't get the statistics that we want in order to substantiate the decisions that we think we're supposed to make. You mean we're supposed to trust the Lord? Wow. Has it come to that? Yes. And I say it to myself as much as anybody else. We all are here to trust the Lord. How is it that anybody would want to become a believer when all they see us doing is living according to our own thinking? Where's the divine spark in that? Where's God in that? Where's the supernatural in that? Where's the God stories in that? Where's the life change in that? Where's the hallelujah, amen to God be the glory in that? It doesn't happen. Only when we we say, Lord, I don't get this, but I'm willing to follow you anyway, that suddenly God begins to do a work in ways that we can't make up, and we're able as his children to say, look at our father. Look at our father. Look at how awesome he is. You need to know him too, because he's changed our lives. Are we there? We willing to do that? We willing to walk with the Lord in the midst of that? Ananias goes on to do exactly what the Lord had told him to do. Verse 17, Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, Paul, Saul, catch this. What's the first thing he says to him? Brother Saul. Wow. Brother Saul. Saul. How many people had Saul made sure were put to death? How many people had been displaced and dispersed because of this man? And yet Ananias submits to the Lord, submits his will, submits his own understanding to the Lord, comes alongside of him, lays his hands. Can you see the tenderness in this? Can you see the gentleness in this? Can you see Christ in Ananias, the Holy Spirit changing and transforming Ananias as we speak, as we understand what's going on here? And he comes alongside of Saul and he says, Brother Saul, is there anybody that we have the right to say to, you don't belong in the kingdom? Is there anybody that we have the right to kick out because they're not good enough? Absolutely not. Brother Saul, he embraces him, lays his hands on him, accepts him, Because the Lord accepted him. Boy, that's a picture, folks. 
In our day and age, do you realize how many people have been injured and hurt to the point of never wanting to step into a building called a church again? Because of the hardness of hearts towards their past, even the things they may be caught up in right now. They don't sense the grace. They don't sense the mercy. They don't sense the kindness of God. And as a result, they want nothing to do with it. We're the ones responsible for that. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you catch this? Ananias comes alongside under the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ could have done this himself. The Lord Jesus Christ could have spoken a word and he would have been completely healed spiritually and physically. But he sends a brother. Why? Because we need one another. That's why. Because Saul needed to know that he had a family. That he had been birthed out of a dysfunctional family into the functional family of God. And Ananias was being sent by the Lord himself, lovingly, kindly, with mercy, with grace, in order to say to Saul, Brother Saul, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be baptized to show the world on the outside what God has done in your heart on the inside. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Fascinating here because this is such a pattern. He died on the Damascus road. Right? Spiritually, in effect, he died. He was in darkness for three days. It was as if he was buried. And it was like he was risen again on the third day when Ananias came to him and prayed that he would receive the Holy Spirit. God's grace toward each of us results in a death to our own thinking, our own righteousness, our own sense of our own goodness. God begins to put into us a deep understanding of our utter dependence upon God's grace and his mercy. And his indwelling presence provides that new life, our resurrection. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised in the newness of his life. The picture here is a picture that every believer ought to be able to relate to. Folks, are we experiencing the grace of God afresh? Are we experiencing the power of God afresh? Are we experiencing the glory of God in our lives and victory that he has for us in the midst of our circumstances, no matter what those circumstances may be? Are we embracing those who seem unlovely? Because we know that the only reason that we're in the family of God is not because of anything we've done, but it's because of the grace of God and what God has done for us. Are we willing to say, Lord, here we are. Use us in whatever way you choose. As we go, make disciples. As we go, we're carefully listening to the leadership of the Lord through the Holy Spirit in our lives as he uses the word of God in order to direct us in our paths that he has for us and the people that we come in contact with. We are simply a light. We are vessels that reveal the glory of the love of Christ in and through us. Are we willing to walk in that? Are we willing to say yes to the Lord 
in that? And do we understand, and maybe we need to be refreshed in this over and over again, I know I do, that it's all by the grace of Christ. It's not by our works. It's not because we're deserving of anything. It's not because we can do anything to get God to do something more. It's because he has chosen out of his kindness and his love to relate to us, to grow us, to serve us as his children. How are we walking with the Lord in that? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.